Hello, and welcome to our Top of Mind podcast. In this program, we will sit down with a higher education technology thought leader and discuss the innovative projects they are working on now and into the future. Today, we are going to go beyond technology tools to discuss how a former CIO is driving change at a small liberal arts university. I'm your host, Caitlin Olkani, Vice President of Client Services and Cybersecurity Research at the Tambellini Group. I'm joined today by Simon Blackwell, the Chief Transformation Officer at Mount St. Mary's University. Over the next few minutes, we are going to hear Simon's thoughts on the role of the Chief Transformation Officer. Let's get started. Welcome to the program, Simon. Thanks so much for having me today, Caitlin. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background on, on myself and my role in higher ed. I had about 25 years of uh, multiple uh, industry uh, experience in uh, e-commerce, banking, aerospace, and I entered the higher ed space about four years ago when I was asked to perform a consulting engagement to assess the state of technology at Mount St. Mary's University by a new president who'd also transitioned in from the commercial sector. The assessment took about three months, at the end of which I made a number of technology recommendations, but I also pointed out that if the university did not address a substantive number of non-technology issues, any money they spent on technology would in many ways be wasted. Uh, the university then asked me to become an employee and assist in addressing these other issues, which included integrated cross-institution planning, ongoing training of back office staff, formalized pedagogical instruction of faculty, and a whole bunch of technology uh, platform improvements as well, both in the back end and in the, uh, in the academic uh, space. Uh, so you know, that's how I got here. And with that, I'll, I'll hand it back to you. Thank you, Simon. We're excited for you to be here today. My first Thanks. question for you is around the current role of the Chief Transformation Officer. That's not a highly used title. What does that encompass? Well, transformation is at the intersection of innovation and change. It involves identifying opportunities for the university to improve its product or its operations, and then starting development and deployment of the innovations required to, to, to make those changes. Much, but not all of this is dependent on technology. So I do effectively serve as the CIO. And, and in this role, uh, what's really important is actually all of the non-academic things that I've done. Uh, because it's in doing those things and not operating in the same context that I'm actually able to see the different opportunities that are available to the university to change. So tell us a little bit more about your transition from the private sector to academia and how that may have given you an advantage or a different perspective? Well, I think that, uh, you know, anytime that people are in any industry for an extended period of time, and the longest I've ever been in one industry is, uh, is six years, they tend to kind of lose sight of, uh, I guess I'd say, the opportunities that surround them. They start operating in a box, in a set of constraints, in a set of the way things are. I could quite frankly have come in from, from any industry uh, before I came into this one. I happened to be coming in from the e-commerce industry immediately before this, but before that, I was in banking. Uh, before that, I was in cybersecurity. 
uh, and before that, I've, I've spent time in pharmaceuticals, uh, spent time uh, uh, on Wall Street, uh, and also spent time uh, working on, on aerospace uh, issues. And I think you know, every industry has a slightly different way that they, they do things, although at the end of the day, it all comes down to, uh, to managing people. You mentioned earlier that you are effectively the CIO at Mount St. Mary's, but is your role encompassing a larger responsibility than IT? Yeah, so about 75% of my time is spent on technology and about 25% is spent on other things. Of the 75% that's technology, about 50% of that is, is core technology, meaning the networks and the servers and the ERP and the student information system. And the other 50% in the technology space is spent focused on what I call, I guess, uh, academic technology, whether it be academic computing or tools to support uh, the pedagogy, tools to support instruction of the students. When I first arrived, there was no distinction in that space and there was very little effort or energy that was put into how do we get technology into the classrooms that helps faculty teach and helps students learn. So over the last four years, we've actually made a substantive budget shift to put more money in that space. Of the 25% mm -hmm. of, of my time that's not spent on technology, it really varies depending on the current needs and opportunities in front of the university. So during my tenure here, I led the effort to outsource student healthcare to a local hospital, leveraging experience I had in the commercial sector in outsourcing and focusing on what's the core business that we're doing and getting rid of those things that we don't, that's not part of our core, that don't provide a strategic advantage. Um, this allowed us to double the hours uh, of our available healthcare practitioner without increasing any costs while also improving the quality of care to the students by having a broader set of provider skills. Wow. As a result of the hospitals now actually working towards the construction of an urgent care and primary care facility with radiology and lab services on our campus that will also be open to the local community. So we live in a fairly rural area. The hospital could not justify building a healthcare clinic up in this area because the draw is only about 25,000 people, not 50,000 people. We got together with them after we developed this relationship to provide healthcare to the students and we said, look, we have 400,000 visitors a year that come to our campus for athletic events, for uh, visiting what's called the Grotto, which is a religious shrine uh, on campus. We have another 50,000 people that visited another religious shrine right next to campus. Uh, we have 200 to 300 students a week that come to the Federal Emergency Management Center next to campus. And you're not taking into account any of those people in your demographics. On top of that, we one quarter of our students are Division I athletes, and they're more prone to injury and need more help. Mm -hmm. So perhaps you could justify a clinic. And they said, well, maybe, no, we still can't do it. And we said, well, what if we lease you the land at a really low cost? Because we own a lot of land. And that made the shift. Uh, and so now they're doing you know, that work as well. They're going to be building a clinic here. I've also done the business modeling and the negotiations for setting up dual enrollment programs with private high schools 
establishing a master's in education program with a 14,000 employee school district. And currently, I'm working on a split classroom, split campus initiative with an international university so that we can export the things that we do to uh, South America and, and other areas. Wow, that sounds great. It seems like you are doing a lot of very transformational work. Uh, I'd say it's transformational, but you know, it's exciting too. I mean, it, it's, it's easy to be engaged when you get to do uh, exciting things. I mean, to be honest, you know, part of the, uh, the pleasure and, and the grace that I get with my job is, is part of the art of transforming is identifying opportunities and then figuring out which ones you can get traction on and which ones you can move forward. So there are plenty of ideas that we come up with that are great ideas, and then we put them aside because either they're going to be too expensive or the reality is there's going to be too much organizational change, too much culture change, too many people to persuade. So I feel like I'm lucky. I actually get to uh, kind of choose the things that are going to succeed and start down the path with them. Well, and it seems like a lot of your really innovative projects are leading to savings and repurposing of assets. Can you share some more of the details? Sure, sure. So uh, one of the things I like to, to do when I'm looking at things to innovate is to try and find two things that are negative and turn, turn them into a positive. So a very simple example at the university is that, you know, we have several hundred laptops that come up for replacement every year. It used to be that people would pay us for those laptops. Now we have to pay somebody to take them away. We also had a situation that we had a large number of thin clients on campus for use in the library and elsewhere. These thin clients were getting old and they were going to need to be replaced. So uh, my lead uh, infrastructure engineer said, you know what, how about if we turn these laptops into thin clients? He said, I know they're out of warranty and they might break, but so what? If they break, we'll just replace them. It's not like they're breaking while somebody's using them and they're critical. There's 25 thin clients in the library. So if a couple aren't available any given day, it's not a big deal. We don't have to buy new thin clients. We don't have to manage a different kind of technology. It's the same as the rest of our laptops. We'll just lock them down, and the only thing on them will be a web browser. And so we did that. So we avoided paying money to have somebody take our laptops away, and we avoided paying money uh, in, in order to buy new uh, thin clients. Then a faculty member jumped on board and said, wait a second, if you're willing to do that, how about we take some other laptops, if you've got more left over after that, and reconfigure them as Chromebooks? I didn't know this, but you can put Chrome on an Intel PC. It doesn't have to be an actual Chromebook, hmm. and effectively turn it into a Chromebook. So the faculty member got a bunch of students together in computer science who rebuilt a whole bunch of Chromebooks, and we took a bunch of PCs, turned them into Chromebooks, and we took them out to 12 high schools in need of technology. So oh, that's great. You know, we, we, we saved money and we made a whole bunch of people happy at the same time. So new ideas can sometimes be met with resistance. When you present these ideas to leadership at the university, um, including perhaps your board, what are they expecting and how do you go about soliciting support? 
Well, uh, it's interesting you ask that because the, the board uh, two years ago created a committee on innovation, and I was asked to kind of be the lead on that from an internal perspective. And I did an inventory of the things I thought that we were doing that were innovative here and took them to the committee, and they all said, well, those aren't innovative. innovative. Those are just saving money. And uh, I thought, well, yeah, but they're pretty innovative ways to save money. And that led me to doing some, some research and saying, okay, how can I present to the board the, the opportunities for innovation that we actually have in front of us as a small university that's not heavily endowed? We don't have the money to do big, giant research projects. And came across a, a great book by a gentleman named Greg Sattel called Mapping Innovation that speaks about uh, how you split your efforts uh, on innovative activities. And, and he says, and actually has evidence from a number of large companies, Google and, and others, that you really need to spend about 70% of your time doing uh, sustaining innovation. And most of those things are actually cost-saving measures or increasing service to a current constituent base, making things somewhat more profitable. 20% of your time should be spent on what's called disruptive innovation. That means attacking adjacent markets or adjacent activities with skills you've already got, resources you already have. A great example there in higher ed is going from the academic education space into the professional education space, which is adjacent, and serving the needs of professionals in a non-credit-bearing uh, uh, way. And only 10% of your time should be spent focused on the big, the big breakthrough things. The things that many people think of as, as innovative, right? The, oh, I can lay my phone down on this little pad and I don't have to plug it in and it's going to charge itself. You know, only 10% of the time should be spent looking at those kinds of things. And the great thing about spending 70% of your time on the sustaining innovations is the entire culture gets to feel like they're engaged in innovation which starts creating momentum for the organization and the money that you save, you can invest in doing the 20% or the 10%. Uh, so what I found was after educating the board on this, they made a very quick shift, they got it. Then I was asked to make a presentation to the cabinet, then to all of the deans, and then to all of the staff of the, uh, the university. And then I've actually been asked to speak at a couple of conferences uh, on this topic. So it's really, as I said, it's that intersection of innovation and change management that creates transformation. Simon, how do you determine which activities to focus on as part of the sustaining innovation? Well, you know, I mentioned some of that beforehand. It's, it's really about looking for those places where there is an opportunity to save money, there's an opportunity to do something different, and assessing the cultural readiness of the organization to do it. Because those kinds of innovations in their nature aren't supposed to cost uh, much. There is one area, I, kinda, I call it the black hole, and, and Greg Sattel's book doesn't speak about this, there's this area, and almost every industry has it. It's that area where you have a whole bunch of people who are really, really, really good at doing something. But that something 
is for a market that doesn't want it anymore or a group of people that don't exist anymore. That area is the hardest thing to change. You've got to figure out how to reallocate those resources and have them do something different. And although that's the place where there's the biggest cost saving, the biggest uh, sustaining innovation return, it's also the area that's you know hardest to change. In higher ed, classically, this has to do, of course, with 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 tenure and mm -hmm. programs that have changed. And what I've been finding is that, as in many places in the business world, I've got to focus on the wins first, get some momentum going, and get everybody doing the aha, we can do this and we can do that. And instead of saying, stop doing this thing, focus on the positive conversation. Look, here's these other things that you could be doing that could be bringing in more students, more revenue, could be having you as a faculty member learn more, because most faculty members you know, are learners, uh, and get engaged, uh, and have the shift be, uh, at least at the beginning, kind of a gradual thing, rather than, hey, we simply have to stop teaching this program. Because what happens when you do that is, not only are you not gonna accomplish that because you get too many people offended about it, now people are just out to have you not do anything because they don't like you. Right. It's interesting that you mentioned that. My personal area of research is in cybersecurity. And time and time again, I come across a lot of pushback uh, from the faculty around trying to institute more cybersecurity measures. And so I see that a lot from this conversation of you know, security versus usability or accessibility. Right. And how do you yep. manage that? It's pretty interesting thinking about it from a transformation perspective and how do you focus on the wins? Because I think you're right, these conversations come up in a lot of different ways across campus. Right. And you know, the way that I typically, you know, do that one, and I guess it's in some ways it's not fair, but it it uh at least the person isn't in the room being hurt, is deflected off to you know compliance things. Look, we've got these FERPA regulations, we've got these HIPAA regulations. And if we violate those things, our accrediting bodies are not going to be happy with us. And if we get in the press about those things, well, uh, you know, it's not going to be good for our student retention. And I'd say, for the most part, that kind of conversation has been working with uh, the full-time staff of the university. We're still a bit challenged on the, on the adjunct side of things. Uh, one of my cybersecurity person actually came up with a great, I think it's a great idea, we're going to test it out last week, of having a uh, phishing uh, attack award. So we've got really good at stopping phishing attacks over the last uh, couple of years, but they still get through occasionally. So he's going to get one of these singing basses. You've probably seen them. I and have. then whoever is the first person to report the phishing attack to our technology support center when a phishing attack comes in is going to get to have the singing bass until the next phishing attack. So That's very creative. <laughs> very creative. Well, if you were to give some advice to other institutions that are wanting to incorporate more innovation into their work, what would you recommend that they do first? Well, 
it's it's hard but not impossible to drive innovation in an organization that doesn't introduce new influencers from the outside, outside of the university and outside of the industry. Because it's often the inquiry into the how and why by an outsider that doesn't really understand what you're doing and why you're doing it that reveals the areas of highest opportunity. Uh, that being said, innovation also requires diversity in the largest sense of the word. You've got to build a group of people, and it doesn't have to be giant, but you've got to have varying race, varying spiritual focus, sexual or gender orientation, cultural background, age, organizational role, uh, all of those kinds of things in the mix in order to be best positioned to support innovation to try and create an innovation committee that's kind of off to the side, filled with the smart people, or those you've already identified as creative, uh, rarely, rarely succeeds. And to build a committee that's more than eight to 10 people will probably get bogged down and make little progress just because it'll all be spent in doing communicating rather than action. And sometimes, you know, institutional governance gets in the way. One of our faculty members actually came up with this term. He said, let's call this thing a task force not a committee right because committee means governance task mm -hmm. force so we've got a task to do and when the task is done we'll move on so the other thing too is to is to rotate people through so rather than having the innovation committee it's people come up with ideas and then we tackle this innovation or tackle that innovation or tackle that other innovation um, and people move, kind of rotate in and out of the activities. I've also found it, it's, it's vital for the institution to come to a common understanding of innovation. Perhaps this would be the first thing, to get people to have a common understanding of innovation and transformation by providing a framework for conversation and a framework for prioritization. I happen to like Greg Sattel's Mapping Innovation Framework. And I really love Tim Collins' Good to Great book. Uh, but what I'm talking about here is not being able to define it in one sentence. I've actually found that counterproductive. People start arguing about words, right? Rather, to have everybody have a common sense of it so that when they see something that's innovative or they hear something about something that might be innovative, they can say, yeah, that's innovative or it's not. Uh, Given that there's a team in place and there's a common understanding and hopefully you've got some kind of outside uh, uh, resource, then kind of start an inventory. of, uh, And the inventory isn't an inventory of things that are innovative. It's an inventory of what skills and resources do we have that we might be underutilizing that we could potentially utilize in another way. And Greg Sattel speaks about markets. I speak about activities, because sometimes when you speak about markets, people think about, oh, it's just the external world, and then you lose sight of the internal. An inventory of what are all the activities that we're doing? What are the activities that people are passionate about? What are the activities that we've got to do, but they're drudgerous for everybody? What are the activities that, that people don't think we should be doing? To have those two lists of things. Uh, and, and then put those into the, the framework that Tim Collins provides in Good to Great. Find the intersection of the things that drive your resource engine, that you're really good at, and that people are passionate about. 
find the intersection of those, and those are the areas to try and try and work on uh, and, and, and move forward. Simon, thank you so much for your thoughts today. This has been a great conversation. I've really learned a lot from you. Well, thanks so much for having me, Caitlin. It's, it's been, uh, you know, it's a, I'm having a delightful experience at, at Mount St. Mary's, and uh, it's really nice to be able to share the kinds of things that we're, we're doing here. Before we close out the conversation today, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to leave with other higher education leaders who might be trying to transition more into the role of a chief transformation officer? Yeah, it, I, I'd say, you know, given, given uh, you know, we have a, a retired Brigadier General as our president now that came out of West Point and he's brought a couple of people with him. And, you know, as he says, we've got to focus on the commander's intent, right? So we got to, people should focus on the business intent where are you trying to go as a business? If your organization doesn't have a strategic plan, don't even think about trying to take on innovation, right? I mean, that, that actually is the step before all of this, is what's the strategic plan of the, the organization? Other than that, uh, make sure that you're doing something that you're good at, that you're passionate about, that drives the resource engine of your institution. And, uh, you know, every day, Try and get up and make today, uh, you know, make yesterday jealous of what you're doing today. Uh, and, you know, that, that should lead to good things. Thank you so much, Simon. This has been just a wonderful conversation with you. We appreciate you participating in our Top of Mind podcast. And that concludes our Top of Mind podcast for this month. Good luck making yesterday jealous of today.